Before we get to this episode, just to say thanks to everyone who's bought my new book, Champion Thinking, How to Find Success Without Losing Yourself. Published by Bloomsbury, the response has been terrific. It's an Amazon bestseller. It's been top 20 in the airport charts consistently, and the reviews have been terrific right across the board. And if you like this episode that you're about to hear on Flow, you'll be sure to enjoy Champion Thinking. Head to my website, simonmundy.com or Amazon, Waterstone, Smiths, places like that to get your copy. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. This is Don't Tell Me The Score, the podcast that uses sport to explore life's bigger questions. My name is Simon Mundy, and each week I sit down with an expert from the biggest sporting names in the world to Buddhist monks, neuroscientists, psychologists, and philosophers. We discuss a theme that tells us something insightful and important about life and how best to live it, from the importance of self-acceptance to facing addiction and developing resilience, right through to getting your circadian rhythms in sync and how to sleep better. Sport is a metaphor for life, and in this podcast, I aim to prove that right. I always like hearing from you, so the best way to get in touch is via my website, simonmundy.com, or I'm at Simon Mundy on social media. In this episode, I'm talking to the former Formula One world champion, Damon Hill, about knowing yourself. Hi, Damon. How are you? All good. Thanks very much, Simon. Yes, very keen to find out what we're going to talk about. So am I. Listen, I'm really excited to chat. I absolutely loved your book, genuinely, and I'm not just saying this to butter you up in any way, but one of the best sports autobiographies I've read. I think your story is epic, both on a sporting, but I think more importantly on a human level. And there is something of the archetypal hero's journey in it, albeit perhaps not in the way some people may expect. And um, I'm keen to cover obviously the key moments of your story. And I've had to cherry pick a few of them out because there are so many. And then unpick the lessons you've learned along the way. I hope that sounds all right to you. Well, it sounds fantastic. I have very fulsome uh, praise and uh, and approval of, of the book. So I'm very grateful for what you just said. And and I and I tend to agree with you. I think that the idea of 
a journey is very much part of what I was trying to put into the book that 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 life leads us to these places and these challenges and 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 maybe the journey is always to get back home maybe that that that's the odyssey that we're all on in some curious way absolutely i've said this to a few people i've spoken to because it is a theme that keeps coming up it's oftentimes it is a journey back to the self and i think that's certainly the case with you wouldn't you say yeah i think i'm very interested in in that question i'm very interested maybe provoked by the fact that i was not i always felt like i wasn't like other um kids in the fact that i had a famous dad so instantly my relationship to the world was was shaped by being the son of someone mm. and so then you uh brought you you're brought to this question as to, to who you are through that way but then it's not i would never suggest that i'm unique and and that's what i'm saying at all i'm i'm saying that I think that everybody has these faces, these things, and, and in the normal process of things through adolescence, um, every child goes through the question as to, well, if I'm not my parents, I'm not. I don't want to be my mum, and I don't want to be my dad. You know, I, I want to be me. And so, to quote the Sex Pistols, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, that's what it's often about: is finding out who you are, and it's and it's not always an easy thing to answer and i think that it's answered in a way through trials it's answered through tests of character indeed and you talk about identity and as well i think it's about trying to do your best to untangle those patterns that often get passed down generation to generation and i do think this is almost a universal thing that everyone has to go through and you spend a lot of time untangling some of the stuff and i think people who don't necessarily go on that journey it kind of unwittingly gets passed down through the generations and to me that's kind of the point of life to some degree does that make sense to you no it does and i think that's that's what you find out if you if you go through the process of therapy which i did you know you're you're encouraged to read up about um the discovery of the unconscious and uh what uh, freud and jung uh, found out and these uh, you realize that there are these unconscious motives and they're kind of subliminal. They've been planted in your mind a long time ago from birth, um, sometimes even in the womb. Um, and so when I think of my the way I was brought into the world, my mum was actually going to motor races with me um, in her womb and she was experiencing the anxieties perhaps of watching her husband race. So... Some people would would say, okay, but that's mumbo jumbo. But actually, the science is is showing increasingly. The science is showing that uh, we are all shaped by these experiences in the womb, and uh, uh, and then latterly, we model ourselves on our parents. And if our parents have issues, um, then these things are transferred, in, and you are unconscious of them because you're too young. And, mm. and it's only through growth that you you managed to untangle that previous you know the previous issues that were handed down from your parents to you and from their parents to them and so on and so forth mm. and the whole idea of um moving moving through life and trying to un untangle yourself from this this history which is always dragging you backwards into repeat patterns and then you see it in addiction you see it in in also in, in abusive relationships that that people are just acting out what they've been taught. And it's not to excuse the behavior, but it is definitely a, a fact which we, we can say is 
may be controlling you rather than the other way around. It's about identifying what we are responsible for. And you say that the issues that parents may have, and everyone has issues, don't they? And breaking that chain and you say when you're an adolescent, you know, you can't break free of them, but later you can. But yet still a lot of people, I think, will go through life and be entirely unaware of of yeah. what is driving their behavior. Anyway, with all that preamble, let's get into it. And a nice place to start is early on. What was your first family memory? That's a good one. Uh, first family memories. Hmm. I mean, the typical things that mealtimes, I would say, you know, mealtimes, kitchens, uh, gardens, you know, we lived in a house in North London and we had, it was a fairly typical post-war urban house, had a garden that backed onto a park and I, I've revisited it because they gave it a blue blue plaque. So the, the poor people that lived there were descended upon by the media. And um, one day, and we all visited and, and celebrated the, the Graham Hill's plaque in, in Mill Hill. And, and it, it was surprising how small it was, of course. You know, the same thing that happened when you go back. When I was younger, it appeared much larger. But that's our, that's our, our little house that we lived in. That, so those early memories are very much of microscopic details, you know, like... Yeah crinkly windows and and parquet flooring and 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 the driveway and stuff like that all month sort of the mundane everyday stuff you mentioned meal times so if you had to describe the energy of the average hill dinner time because every i think family has a sort of energy around that table what would that energy have been like well i, I think what i'm saying in a way actually just mentioning it is is that you, the, when my dad was home which was not often you know, a Sunday lunch would have been a big event and he would have been the center of the whole thing. You know, we, you know, everyone got all the stuff together and my mum did all the cooking. And sometimes my grandma and my, uh, my dad's mum and dad were there. And we used to have this fantastic old, it used to be <laughs> a kind of combined unit, massive thing, which was a radio record player and tape deck all in one they put on i think it was i don't know whether it was family favorites or something but it was you listen to this radio and there was a brilliant sound that came out of it all valve amp and so the the morning part of the day would be listening to someone reading requests from all over the world i mean it was <laughs> it was so kind of british empire in a way um you know there'd be people you know they'd like to send a message from new zealand to their relatives in in england and and there would be that sort of build up to it. And then there'll be this big event, which would be the Sunday lunch and the whole works. And those things are, those ceremonies in a way were quite large in your mind. I think the, I, I think you're, as a young person, you're reassured by being surrounded by your entire family. And when, when there's quite a lot of people, it can be quite fun. Especially my, my dad was quite entertaining as well. Yes. So he was the dashing 60s swashbuckling type, larger than life, the old pencil moustache, which you've described, that he would be in front of the mirror clipping to within 0.01 of a millimetre, the slick hair, the laconic grin, yeah. the glint in his eye. Yet your mum said that when she met him, he wasn't this larger-than-life character. He was actually sort of shy and reserved. So what do you think the real Graham Hill was like? Well, I think that's see, that's that sort of alludes to what we were talking about earlier, which is that maybe he didn't know who he was. Maybe he needed to meet my mum to discover something about himself or there was some process that he that he went through in 
having the comfort of having the relationship with Betty. And so, yeah, he was, he was, he was shy. She was actually the star at the time yeah. because she was an old woman and yeah. uh, he'd taken up rowing and she was actually rowed for England. Um, and so there's an article I found where it actually refers to Graham Hill's early races as being the husband of the famous oarswoman, Betty Hill. So he kind of stole the limelight from her in some sense, in a way. She sort of sublimated herself to to his career, not that she was going to carry on as, as an oarswoman. But um, so, yeah, something in my dad, some confidence came from either being in motorsport. I think maybe that's what it was. He also found himself, I think, in motorsport, he you know he talked about finding himself when he went down to Browns Hatch and had the first few laps in a racing car, and he suddenly realised, my God, this is this is what I want to be doing, and so yeah, most partly you know that piecing together of character and and then confidence comes from knowing you're good at something, I suppose as well. Would he have had that confidence? Do you think, and that outgoing nature, if he didn't have your mother there to support him? Now, I don't know the answer to that. There was security, perhaps, in that. And I think part of your identity, uh, or the identity that we we imagine ourselves to have of being, you know, being a father, the, the man of the house, all those things are part of building an identity, aren't they? So, you know, being, to be confident in the world, can you be a man? Can you, you know, fend for your family that would be one of the things the tick box things that we would imagine being necessary if you want to be a confident and proud man member of the community so you know i would say in a way you're kind of collecting these identities that make you approved by society i mean nowadays we'd obviously throw a big question mark over whether or not those things are necessary at all you know that's that's down to the idea that society will accept certain people. So, you know, in some in some ways it's conformist to have a family, um, looking back on it. But then of course, um there's also some, you know, seriously some truth to the to the fact that you do grow when you when you have a family to look after. Mm. And in relationships as well. Because I think relationships are very interesting insofar as the romanticism idea of that you meet someone and love them in every single way but actually i think the truth of relationships are that they're challenging and you tend to grow through them i completely um, agree with you there that is absolutely true is that you know we we have there's a rose-tinted idea of a relationship the romeo and juliet two people totally in love and then of course there's the reality of getting to know people and realizing there's differences in opinions differences in in views and and trying to work out how you can be together and how you can go through life when you have someone who is see things slightly differently to you in your book you say that you think your parents had something of a, a difficult relationship how did you sense that difficulty what was their attention was it you know what was the dynamic that led you to say that i would just say two 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 things memories that crop up or you know the idea that you know that, that your mum's upset about something what is she upset about and we weren't all we knew that was that dad would be comforting her about something so you know i'm talking about when i was maybe five or you know four or five or six or something and you'd be aware that there was something that's up now it may have may have been some issue to do with them or it may have been you know they'd lost a friend in or in the sport because that used to happen quite a lot um and then there would be times when you're in the car and you're in the back seat and the conversation's going on and <laughs> you'd be aware that 
mum would be say frustrated about some particular personal point and then there'd be my dad would be either trying to placate her or you know disagreeing with her so you you become gradually aware that there's these difference of viewpoints and uh, as we were talking about and you know there is this tension also in in relationships between your parents and you sit there in, in a kind of like a jury you're kind of trying to work out which which one's the truth mm-hmm. uh, um, and what's what's also going on behind the the rest of the conversation because you only get you only get the the tip of the iceberg how would you describe your relationship with your parents and specifically with Graham? And you talk about the kind of a lack of a healthy awareness of one's right to exist. It was a line you used. And also that Jackie Stewart, oh no, it was, uh, it was your mother, in fact, saying that, you know, your father was, was, was quite hard on you. What was your relationship with him like? I love my dad. You know, I, lo- I love the fact and maybe I like the fact that he was no nonsense. You know, he didn't, sweat the small stuff at all really you know he just was interested in quite a practical person prior to quite a you know he, a functional person he didn't allow space i think for feelings so he didn't allow didn't allow space for let's say if i was you know felt passionately about something there was one instance where you know i, I when i was much younger i came home i'd been on a trip um, and I'd taken a lot of photographs. I'd done, almost done an entire roll of film on a river <laughs> and this gushing, this gushing stream of water, which had obviously impressed me. And he was, like I'm doing now, he was, uh, he was laughing like a drain when, I, when he saw the pictures. And I was quite hurt by that because I thought, no, Dad, I'm trying to show you this. Can't you see? You know, and, and maybe in that way he could have been a little bit more sensitive. Um, but he was very much of the view that life is not fair and you better get used to it. You spoke about as well at Christmas, he would keep you waiting. I thought this was an interesting observation that Christmas Day, he would have a lie in and you'd all have to wait for him to come down. And Christmas Day, it's the day for children. I thought that was an interesting observation that you made that he was like that even on Christmas Day. But it was a pantomime act. You know, he 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 played it up. He was Hook, you know, he was he was the the guy who you knew that everything depended on him. And he he teased us and he was a in a nice way he was very he loved to play that uh you know um everyone have to be waiting on me and he would he would drag it out just for just for effect and and there's a fine line though between you know teasing and and being uh, unkind i think and that's and it's difficult i think sometimes he teased my mum and think she found that a little bit tough but he was never unkind to the to us children at all you know he was he was we knew he was fun, we, but we knew he was also, you know, he had the power, and uh, you know, he could he could make our lives misery if we if we <laughs> if he could. I mean, reading school reports was an absolute trauma. You know, he would he didn't mean to be unkind, but we'd all have to go and go through our school reports with him, and he'd he'd literally be doing it in bed. He would be in bed. We'd have to go up with our report and go. And he'd go right. Let's go through. And he loved it. He loved hamming it up but he just pushed it sometimes a little bit over the line i mean i'm laughing about it now but at the time it was you were terrified because you just thought he didn't know what the consequences would be but he was toying with us but you know he was charming as well Mm -hmm. your house when you were growing up was something of a sort of 60s party central and you've painted a lovely picture of famous people at these parties all trying too hard and being somewhat on edge what were they like what do you remember Um, of those parties 
Yeah, I, I may have confused you there. I don't. I, the parties that happened at my dad's houses, um, we lived in a small house in Mill, and then we moved to a bigger house in the early seventies. And um, so he had a big celebration. I think it was for his fortieth or something at the big house, and there there would be, you know, that that was a proper Roland Martin's kind of, you know, uh, everyone's a celebrity party, um, and. Uh, yeah, that was that was that was a fun do. Um, but you know, the ones in the sixties became famous for the police turning up and ending up in the party as well, and people wearing their clothes. You know, if it happened today, you'd have the MPs involved uh, asking questions. It was a different era, anyway. But then, what I refer to also in the book is my experience of having gone to celeb parties as a celebrity myself. Oh, I see. Right, gotcha. Yeah. And um, I fi- I do find uh, some of these gigs quite tense. You know, because everyone is so concerned about their their own image and their own careers. Who do they fit with? Who are the people they want to be seen with and all that stuff? I find it sometimes ridiculous. And you know, there is a front that you put on and, and people buy a front because you can't you can't actually explain yourself completely. So most people know you as a you know one-dimensional character. Um, and beyond that, you know, we all know that we're fairly similar. I found some events that I went to as you know when I was invited as a celebrity. I, you know, people quite standoffish and, and tricky, and I and I don't get that, and I'm I'm not you know, not interested in playing that game. So celebrity parties, which a lot of people will imagine to be these glamorous, wonderful affairs where you know you've made it, they don't actually compare that favorably to a normal party with real friends and and that kind of thing. No, I think I think I'm much more. You know, I would lo- I prefer to go out with a group of small group of friends, maybe, you know, six eight's a, eight's a big table for me. You know, um, <laughs> I uh, I like to have conversations about things. You know, and I don't small talk. I, I it gets very very tiring after a bit because you go through this introductory small talk where you talk around things that really matter, and you never actually get down to a conversation. So. I find that uh, can be a bit tedious sometimes. Agreed. So you mentioned about how lethal F1 was, particularly back in your father's day, but he did leave the sports largely unscathed in 1975. Huge sigh of relief from you and the family. Then in November that same year, there was a plane crash in which your father died. Um, You were 15. And also you were the first to realise in your family what had happened as well. Yes, I was. Yes, that's that's the 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 difficult bit about it was I was I was old enough to read between the lines. So there was a news flash. I was watching television with my sister Samantha, younger sister, and um, we stopped this program to bring a news flash, and it said a plane had gone down in um, had reports of a plane coming down in Arkley uh, on the golf course, and that was the end of the news flash. Well, I knew my dad was on his way back because we were expecting him home from the south of France on his way back from his testing that, uh, with his race team in, in uh, Paul Ricard, and he flew his own plane. So didn't take much to put two and two together. Even talking about it now, it brings, um, you know, it gives me the heebie-jeebies because it was, it was one of those just awful moments um, where you, the penny was dropping, but rather slowly. And then eventually I, I got to 
the kitchen where my mum was having dinner with some neighbours and the phone went and I overheard a conversation, one end of a conversation. And um, uh, it was became apparent to me that this was probably going to be bad news. Mm. Um, you said you were curiously calm in the days after that. Do, do you think there was an element or was there an element of dissociation from your emotions at that point? Yeah, I think a little bit. Um, you don't know what you're supposed to feel. I mean, you know, you, you kind of go, well, okay, what are you, what, how are we supposed to behave now? How are we supposed to feel about this? Um, so I think there was a little bit of that. I think there was deep shock, um, frankly, and I think it gets buried. And you, there are things, you, the motions you have to go through of doing normal things. I mean, just the idea of going down and having breakfast and doing something normal um, seemed incongruous. So I think anybody who's experienced trauma like that will 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 will, will understand what I'm saying. It's um, it seems disrespectful. It seems trite to carry on in some way. So you've you're mixed. There's a lot of things mixing around in there. Um, and I slept a lot. You know, the way of dealing it was just to go to sleep and um, to get away from it. I suppose. But yeah. Um, was there a, a part as well at all that thought consciously or otherwise that, you know, I need to now step up and take responsibility for the family and in future or whatever, fix what had happened? Did, did, was yeah, that I going on? I definitely think there was an element of that. I mean, not immediately, but latterly. And you, you, um... This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Um, it's, it's something, it's not sure, I'm not sure where it comes from other than, than I think the idea that somebody needs to do something about this. And I looked around me and I, and I couldn't see my mum being able to cope and I couldn't be, see, you know, my, my sisters had their own way of dealing with it and, uh, and they were kind of separate. So I just thought, well, what could, you know, 
I think I had adopted the approach to life that my dad lived and espoused, really, which was where well, you just get on with it and you don't, um, you know, nothing's going to fix itself. You just have to get your, roll your sleeves up and get stuck in. So latterly, that was part of my inspiration, in, if you like, in, in my way of approaching things was that I'd take, I'd, I'd, I'd take his um, legacy and, and, and say, okay, well, he did it. You know, he, he made a life for himself. He started with nothing and, and just got stuck in. So in a way I'm, I'm not, you know, I am gifted that opportunity to, um, to see if I can do it again, you know, for mm-hmm. the so let's fast forward a bit then, because bikes uh, were your uh, initial passion from a being a projectile point of view, and then you were steadily rising the ranks, and 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 then there was a fortuitous nudge you could say from your mother that sort of sent you in the direction of cars, and and there you know things were going pretty well right up until the point. So you you speak about at that time it must have been around eighty nine. Um, when interest rates were up at around 15%, your first child, Oliver, had been born, and it's all of a sudden you had no drive um, in terms of you weren't offered a drive, not that you didn't have any internal drive. And yeah. but, but rather than give up, which a lot of people would have done, you thought, no, even with the the external pressure of the, the economic challenges and, and all the other things, you thought, no, I'll give it one more roll of a dice. And you said that you gave it 110%, whereas you thought you'd been giving 110% before, but perhaps you hadn't. So you can just tell me a little bit about that particular drive at that point to go, okay, last roll of the dice. Yeah, I think when things, you know, you do have to look at yourself and say, okay, well, have I been doing it? You know, it can't be the world. It must it must be something I'm doing wrong if it hasn't it hasn't come off. Um, so my mid twenties were spent racing, but I, you know, I think looking back, I would say, although I was determined in, in, in races, I was slightly half-hearted in my, the rest of my life as a, as, as far as approaching what I did went. And so when the chicken comes home to roost or whatever it is, um, you know, and you're up without a prospect and without a job and you've got a family and you've got, as you said, interest rates were actually 17%. Um, oh, wow. and, Gosh. um, and the house you just bought has got subsidence. Um, you realize, okay, you can't, if you're going to do this, you're going to have to apply yourself a little bit harder. And it's difficult to believe that you can try harder sometimes. You think you're trying as hard as you can, but you're not covering all the bases. There's there's all kinds of different angles that you still have been missing. So I, yeah, I adopted a different different approach. But I mean, I think there was a huge amount of luck that, that it played a part in my uh recovery from from unemployment as a driver and literally was but it, it was also to do with taking opportunities i think this this line that um actors use which is there are no small parts any small actors you know i think that that might be a good way of looking at it was that i just thought well if even if it's you know rubbish car uh, at least it's a car i can show what i can do you know so i just i drove anything and everything and i and i just tried to be the best I could when, whenever I got a chance. A line's just sprang in my mind that I read of yours where you, you still gave yourself a bit of a hard time in saying, you know, I, I'm not great at making things happen. And I think you were referring to after Formula One. However, to look back at that time, 
and you talk about a bit of luck, but everyone needs luck. And clearly, a lot of people at that point, under that amount of pressure, with the subsistence, with the interest rates, with the first child, with all, everything else, would have perhaps gone the safe route. But you chose a tricky route and gave it 110%. So to me, that's a perfect example of you being excellent at making things happen. I, I think we, we there might be a very almost a, a curse of a, of a determination gene in the hill family which is which makes us you know if things are impossible we just think okay well then nothing i mean my dad used to say nothing's impossible um you know it, it, the more impossible it is the more we want to try and make it possible and it's and it, it can be I, I mean i beat myself self up over golf i mean it's ridiculous it is an impossible game. So <laughs> yeah, agreed thing for a person like me because i i refuse to give up um i should have given up and done, gone and enjoyed myself but um you know it's just the appeal of a challenge like that really um you know and I, I don't like it when people say to me you can't do this or you can't do that uh, that, that really um makes me more determined to to show that that's that's not true that you know that, and i think i admire we all admire those those people who've seen things through the dis, the people who are the dissuaders you know um but sometimes you can make it worse for yourself you know you can you you know take it sometimes you do have to find a balance and, and that's where it, it can get um painful if you're not, if you're literally are trying to do something which is impossible <laughs> yes indeed now i mean at that decision was clearly a really good one because you know the chips fell well for you and within a matter of years you know you're you're in formula one at a advanced age really so you're given a drive by williams alongside Ayrton senna and so i thought let's skip forward to another monumentous event in your life and in sporting history was obviously Imola in 94, the most high profile, probably fatality in F1 history. And you said that um, after it, again, I got the impression that you, you know, you reacted very stoically and calmly until the point at which Jackie Stewart rang you, which seemed to tap into a wellspring of emotion. So, you know, can just talk a little bit about how you, like what was going on inside you at that point, and then we, over that phone call with Jackie. And well, I so, think there was a lot of shock throughout the whole sport, um, bewilderment, shock, and and grief, um, and fear as well. Because it, you, you know, there's nothing like having losing two drivers in a weekend to make you realise that um, what you're doing is is not safe. Um, that brings it home to you, um, and. I wasn't going to go. The, the Jackie Stewart phone call was about going to Ayrton's funeral. I wasn't going to go because I thought I don't want to deal with all that. You know, I, I just didn't want to. And Jackie insisted. Jackie said, "You will regret it for the rest of your life if you don't go." And Jackie, obviously, big mates with my dad back in the day, big uh, rivals as well. And um, they went to a lot of funerals, and they dealt with the grief. They dealt with the reality of the sport. And so uh, he did persuade me to go to Ayrton's funeral. And I was, of course, that was the first funeral I'd been to. Um, first, well, anyway, you know, the first funeral that was very like my dad's fun funeral. So my dad's funeral was a very public event. Um, and so I think it brought up a lot of of those issues. And I kind of found myself going through all of that grief again. Uh, which is cathartic, you know. I, I will say it is necessary. Um, mm. if, 
unacknowledged grief is is um, is not a good thing because it stays there and it and it, mm. it can shoot out mm. um, like a neutron star. You know, you see those beams of energy come out the side, and you don't you know you don't know where it's going to come out. So you have to uh, you have to consume it. You know, they talk about being consumed by grief, but you're actually consuming the grief. It's more like you are combusting it. Um, and experiencing grief is is unnecessary, I think. Yes, uh, emotion is not going to go anywhere, is it? And, and you know, it, it needs to be felt at some point, and it and t- it will tend to get felt in one way or other at some point. So, just really quickly, because I I only sort of became aware of this when reading your book, your view of the official narrative of the Ayrton Senna accident, which is that the steering column broke, but you're of the opinion that actually he just lost control of the car at a time when the car was hard to control yeah you can't you can't convince people of of things they want to believe and and they a lot of people were very devoted to um to Ayrton and they don't like to think of their heroes being in any way having any um flaws so it's a touchy subject you know and I don't want to offend anybody but all I'm saying is I went I went through the the science of it i went through the data i went through the analysis of what i what i was available what was available to me of the accident and um to this day i still believe that he was pushing himself as he always did beyond the limits in order to win and that's that's so to to my mind ayrton was always on the edge of um of his abilities and I, and that's why he was Ayrton Senna that's what made him great and I think there is there's ev- there's always a moment where that defeats you that that somehow you need to go over the edge and 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 I'm I, d- I just think you know I, I did drive exactly the same car through exactly the same corner on exactly the same weekend as he did so um I kind of think I've got some valid viewpoint on that and i don't see why it's to the detriment of, of in any way of of ayrton to suggest that he over over drove the car under ridiculously difficult circumstances because that was his nature he would not be defeated we talked earlier about you know things that are impossible he he was determined to win that race and he determined to win it also for roland ratzenberg who died the previous day and um i have been told that he was carrying a, an Austrian flag with him. So his emotions were extremely high on that weekend. And also he'd not scored any points and he needed to win that race. And there was a number of factors that made it, it conspired against him, I think. And uh, I think that he ultimately, it was very unlucky what happened um, in the accident. So yeah, that's really why I went through that process in the book um, mm-hmm. to try and just give a few added facts or views that that maybe hadn't been aired and i completely agree with you i mean who's better place to comment on it than you and in in no way is it disrespectful to ayrton and ayrton was someone who had a clearly developed spiritual side and he felt very in touch with kind of his mission as it were in in terms of the effect he was having in brazil particularly at that time and everyone who speaks about ayrton talks about him having this almost mystical quality about him. Yeah. And what I found fascinating was your, um, you, you could almost argue you got in touch with 
that mystical quality later in the season after uh, Ayrton had died and you were taken on the mantle and were pushing Schumacher hard that season. And, and you spoke about in your mind asking for his help in one particular race and then promptly having something akin to an out of body experience. Yeah. So the, the story goes that the championship was, uh, as you say, keenly for, I wouldn't say that I was pushing Michael. I think it was pushing me, but anyway, I was trying to catch Michael up in the championship and it was, it was tough because he was, um, he was. Uh, he turned out to be the greatest racing driver that's ever raced. So at the time, he hadn't won a championship. So uh, we knew we were, we were up against a good driver. We didn't know quite how good. But um, it came down to uh, a race that I needed to win in order to stop him winning the championship uh, in Suzuka. And it was wet race, a wet race conditions. And um, I basically run out of ideas. You know, I'd been he'd been catching me on the clock because it was an aggregate race. So I wasn't actually with him in, in, in on the same piece of tarmac, but he, I needed to keep a buffer of six or so seconds and he'd been whittling it down, you know, it'd been going 10, you know, nine, eight, seven until the last lap. And it, I, I knew he'd get me if I didn't pull something out of the hat. So I literally uh, remember saying, look, I'm, I'm done. I let Ayrton, if you're up there, you know, I could do with a hand. And I don't know what happened, but it was like unlocking some blockage in my mind. And the next thing I know, I am driving out of my skin, literally. And it was almost as if I was not um, driving the car. Something else was driving the car. It, it was probably me, but it was probably the me that I'd been kind of keeping protected from, you know, it's the it's the fear of completely letting go uh, of yourself in a in a situation, and you you know I'd I'd had conscious I was conscious I had the talent to do things, but I wasn't probably confident enough to let the talent do the work. So something was unlocked in that moment, and I just was driving out of my skin. It was absolutely awesome, but it was also quite terrifying. Because, okay. Yeah. I spoke to Johnny Wilkinson uh, then last year and he gave an account of when he kicked the winning drop goal in the 2003 World Cup and it's very similar. He says that basically at some point in the run up to that that drop kick it was almost like he wasn't there and he was observing everything happen and it gave him a glimpse into something bigger and actually really shaped his world view thereafter and it sounds like to some degree, you have sort of explained it to yourself. But at the time, did it feel yeah. mystical? Well, what can you say? I asked for help and I got it. <laughs> you know, I mean, it was, uh, what can you say about that? I mean, yeah. honestly, I had felt, we'd felt that we were racing for Ayrton that season. We were, we were, you know, he was part of the team. We'd lost a driver. And then we were up against Michael, and and Michael was sort of seen as the as the villain, and a little bit he'd been a bit naughty in the season, and and it was too easy to, to uh, but in sport that's what happened. So we thought we were we were fighting for Ayrton a little bit, and and so it's the power of belief, isn't it? It's the power. What what can belief do? Um, well, uh, I, I know for a fact that if you believe something, then it's possible, um, and. We still don't know. We still haven't untapped it. And that was very much Ayrton's quest as well as a driver was to find out what was possible. Mm. Um, and, and there's an element of surrender to it as well, isn't there? Exactly. It is. It is. It's letting go. 
it's it's not it, it's it's just yeah that's what the leap of faith is isn't it yeah and you talked about michael being a bit of a naughty boy and um adelaide he crashed into you scuffering your chances are you ready to point your finger yet at him for that and say yeah he was no, i don't know i'm not i'm not michael schumacher i've seen it on youtube <laughs> and look, what would i do in his situation i i know i think in a in a racing car sometimes you get your desperation to um to win can sometimes uh, get you to do things you regret afterwards <laughs> yes um I, in the interest of impartiality i just want to say yes it's I, like I, the guy in the penalty <laughs> box and there's no one between you and you know what i mean your foot yeah. might just come out and just <laughs> hit yeah. ankle. you don't know no um and, and that year um because of that uh incident you know you just missed out on the title a, a year later something of a disappointing season for you silverstone crashed again arguably a bit more 50 50 this one now i watched on youtube um i watched some videos uh of both of your reactions to that second crash and i found it interesting because you've spoken about there was perhaps a lack of self-confidence in you at certain times and obviously Michael was kind of the other end of the scale was this never show any, any weakness. Yeah. And I don't want to say you came across as apologetic after that crash, but there was something of a, a, yeah. a almost like you were a bit, you know, you, you felt bad about it. And then Michael was interviewed about it. And not only was he damning, um, completely laying all the blame on you, but he also tried to pile. He also brought Adelaide in from the previous season and added that in as well, sort of, the old, um, the old double whammy approach. And I just wondered, you know, I wonder what you make of Michael's confidence because you alluded to the fact that, you know, he was great when he was out in front, but oftentimes if he was being really battled, he might end up in a, in a bit of a, an uncompromising position, which is where that reputation for being something of a baddie came from. D- do you think, was his confidence brittle? Well, I think it, I think it helped him being a, be a formidable competitor. I think, you know, we exude something. It's like, I mean, we, we've got examples today, haven't we, of people who are always blowing their trumpet. And, it's, it's, you know, it works. You can convince, you know, more than 50% of the people that you are what you say you are. Um, and I think also you convince yourself a little bit as well. So, But not the, fully. Well, this is it. I mean, the problem with it is if you create an idea of yourself and you project an idea of yourself as being invincible, then it's like a Ming vase. You only need one scratch and it's ruined. You know, and that's that's the if if the evidence is pointing to another reality, which is that you're 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 vulnerable, you're also you're also beatable, um, then of course you can't make those claims. And 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 sometimes I think Michael didn't like to, couldn't cope and, and and sebastian vettel's a little bit similar as well you know when it's not actually demonstrably true that you are you're better than everyone then then the the conflict takes place in the in the individual themselves the competitor themselves and they you know this does not compute the computer says no and they they end up being irrational um so it can, it can happen yeah i think so we know it's not true that that people are invincible we know that everyone can be beaten you know at some point or other i mean there's some very very good people who are very very tough to beat um that, that someone like uh, federer or someone like that but he's got a he, he doesn't crow about it you know my muhammad ali used the approach 
maybe that's different with boxing because you've only got one opponent mm. and it's necessary to demolish them mentally before you even get in the ring. So, you know, Muhammad Ali's claims that he was the greatest were, they worked, you know, but he, he did it with a twinkle in his eye. He did it with a, a little bit of a, a wink, didn't he? You know, he knew that he was entertaining people. Um, um, but yeah, I think it's, I think it's necessary to, to be confident. My uh, Fangio had a good quote, which was that you must always believe, um, you're the best, but always believe that you can be better. So he never allowed, um, you know, he would, if he was being beaten, he would say, well, well, I've got to be better. That's his way of, um, playing the trick. And it's extraordinary, isn't it? How in competition, people competitors learn how to trick themselves into performing um and you know it's it's whether or not you totally believe it or not i mean i you can actually trick yourself knowing that you're tricking yourself but it still works um in in certain situations um so uh sports psychology is very interesting yes it yeah definitely is so i mentioned 95 a bit of a disappointing year for you you were burnt out post Senna, but also the commitments that were suddenly you know forced upon you with the the raised profile and everything like that but 96 the um the year when you brought home the bacon and up against Jacques Villeneuve another son of a driver whose father died albeit um, actually racing and I mean that's um what, what a storyline that is that you and him going toe to toe and then obviously you won the race and famously, Murray Walker uh, got the uh, got the lump in the throat. And what were your emotions at that moment? I was pretty relieved, actually, because it had been quite. There'd been a long gap between the previous race, a three week gap between the race where I didn't win it and I could have clinched the championship. It was all a bit embarrassing because um, um, Bernie Eccleston had invited Mick and Jerry down as well, so we had all the celebrities, and it was only a short trip to Portugal. And, and and then I didn't do, I didn't pull it off, and so we had to wait three weeks um, to to get to Japan, and so quite a long tense time. Um, and it's quite difficult to sleep the night before. You you yeah you know, you're going to find out tomorrow. You know you've been waiting maybe your whole life or at least a year to find out, and um, tomorrow you're going to find out. Will you cross that threshold? into sporting immortality or you're going to stand outside the door for the rest of your life. Um, so did, did you get any sleep? Not at all. I was so tired. I must have been so tired, but you got so much adrenaline. Yeah. You, you can do it. I mean, I was just tossed and turned the whole night long and, and God, I was glad when it was morning and uh, could get on with work. And um, but, um, That's funny because they say a lack of sleep affects driving worse than drink, but you, it didn't seem to affect you too much. Yeah. Yeah, they do. Um, but you're, you're very fit, you know, when you're in, in a Formula One, you know, you can probably get away with it for a few um, a few days. Um, you're young, fit and everything. But um, yeah, motivated. But I was, by the time it was over, I was pretty relieved, I'll be honest. So there you go. Formula One world champion, the first son of a Formula One world champion. You know, all these things, you pick up sports personality of the year for a second time. Let's fast forward then to the end of your to your racing career. And in, in your last race, you pulled the car in and just sort of had had enough. And without loitering on that too much, you then went off into retirement. And you know, many would think that that would be the end of of your journey, if you like. But in some ways, that was really just the start of it, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, 
that's where it got interesting, I think. Um, when you've got something to do, then you can put all your energies into that. And in some senses, you can defer addressing issues. And what a lot of people had um, in the past, they'd leapt out of their Formula One cars and straight into some massive business project that um, that absorbed them. And you know, maybe they had the ability to do that. I wasn't that kind of person at all. I, I had questions I wanted to find out the answers to before I embarked on whatever I was going to do next. And so I literally did do quite a lot of delving into questions that were almost driving me mad you know, to find the answers to. Um, and, you know, I, I listened to, uh, you know, every episode of In Our Time. I read God knows how many books. I went for long walks. I grew my hair. I, you know, became very self-reflective. And I also was a dad, you know, I was also looking forward to spending time because this is the thing that didn't happen with our family was that my dad died and I didn't want that for my children. I didn't want my children to go through. So I, I certainly wasn't going to come make a comeback and do more racing because the anxiety of, of that being repeated on my family was too, too much for me. So I, um, so I tended to avoid dangerous things. Uh, the most dangerous thing I think I did was skiing, mountain biking, and uh, surfing, but not not motorsport. No, and is it fair to say that the depression that sort of engulfed you after you'd retired that came as a surprise? Yeah, you could say that. I think I th- I think I thought, yippee! I'm 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 done it. You know, I've f- completed the mission, and now I can just enjoy myself. But I couldn't. I I just found myself getting um, inexplicably uh, overwhelmed by by things. We we bought a big house and we had builders and they wouldn't leave and it was like I seemed to have more problems than than I expected um, when I stopped racing and and I couldn't work out why this wasn't supposed to be how it works. You know, surely I'm in the clear now. You know, and it just seemed to be relentless issues that kept on coming up, and I just couldn't seem to to get my mind into the place where I could cope with what I done. I mean, you know, first of all, you, you, when you're racing, you just don't have time to deal with these things, and then when when you stop, um, you know, that's all you're dealing with. Is it's just the the kind of legacy of having had a whirlwind career in Formula One. Um, and I didn't really know where I wanted to go. I just seemed to be kind of drifting and being pulled one way or another. And I didn't actually know. I just wanted it to stop, frankly. I just wanted it to do nothing. And I couldn't see what was wrong with doing that, having the space. And I, but I just couldn't seem to find a way to get to it. So I, you lose your identity as well. So you lose. Mm. This is the thing is that is quite big in this whole issue is, is that who are you? Who do you want to be? That's, that was really it. I mean, it was very simple. When I when I was younger, people would say, oh, are you going to be a racing driver like your dad? And I'd go, no, I'm, I really hated people asking me that question. So I went and, you know, I raced bikes. That was my love. And then I ended up doing exactly what they expected of me. You know, I became a racing driver like my dad. And so if I hadn't been a racing driver, who would I have been? And I didn't know. I had no idea. So I didn't know. I'd, I'm 40 years old and I don't know. Well, I still don't know what I want to do when I grow up. 
<laughs> but, but this, I think that's a really interesting line, actually, what, what to do, because there is this sort of society promise that you will do something. And then once you've done that something, then you will have arrived. And then the happiness that is possible will come at that time. And again, I'm thinking back to my interview with Johnny Wilkinson, because Johnny said that he feels very grateful that he learned after 2003 that it's just not true. But society is sort of set up in that way. I think all of us, to some degree, feel that, you know, yes, once I've done X, Y, Z, the job, the relationship, whatever it may be, then I will be happy. But obviously, that's not the case. So in, in your instance, it's just particularly poetic, really. So I guess, to some degree, again, consciously or unconsciously, thought the f1 title that you won would solve everything would fix everything but everything was still in there the grief grief, was still in there needed addressing yeah and i mean honestly i would say that i am mightily glad i did go through what i went through Mm. and i I, and i was well rewarded not only financially but also um by society you know people you know, want to know who you are and want to, and, and the reason we're talking now is because of that's still a factor. So, you know, but it's not enough just to be <laughs> swanning around, you know, and everyone being nice to you, uh, you know, you need, need to be able to give something. So, mm. and that, I think that's what I found quite difficult is to work out how I could give something that was a value. Um, maybe I'd already given what I was, uh, you know, my gift, if you like, as a driver, maybe I'd already done that, but that's, that left me being, you know, being quite redundant. And so I don't think that f- that fulfills human beings. We we need to be able to do something. I think this COVID lockdown has really brought up uh, and, 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 and also made a lot of people, everybody on the planet who's been locked down has realized, well, wait a minute, what am I doing with my life? Mm. What, what was I? Am I just busying myself? What am I? You know, people like to be busy, but it's being busy for the right reasons and and doing things that are are not just um, to compete with uh, other people who are busy. You know, and and that's 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 the challenge. I think is to find something where you can be of use and feel good about that. You know, yeah. Uh, A line I really liked of yours was about depression being a sign essentially from from yourself that you're going the wrong way and need to change and that's somewhat at odds with you know a lot of the narrative around depression yes it is and and this is this is where you start to realize that our society as you just mentioned you know the idea that you work hard you'll get to a point of financial security and then you can do all the things you love doing that's that's sold to us as an idea um and I think a lot of people work hard with that in mind, whether it's a holiday that they worked hard for. They, you know, the idea is you work hard and then you get your reward. Um, and so I think, I think that that is not necessarily true. And I think that what is what people find who unconsciously are realize that that's not true. They're at odds with themselves and they, the depression is a way of saying to them, you, know, you don't believe in yourself, do you? You don't believe that this is that this is you, you're you're made to feel you're a bad person because you you're not achieving the goals that are set by society. Therefore, you're a bad person. You're a failure. But there's another. Maybe you've been going the wrong direction. Maybe mm. it's time to stop and take stock and reflect on where you are going, yeah. rather than just continually 
self-flagellate yourself um, because you you know you believe you can't you, you there if you can't do these things therefore you must be a bad person or a useless person mm-hmm. and that that's sort of what depression I think is is a, is a, is a, is a message to you saying find out what what is in your soul that you uh, that rewards you in the right way and one of the questions you find are being asked a lot when people are depressed is what's the point in fact that was um, uh, Kenneth uh, Williams's note before he killed himself was what's the point what's the bloody point you know and you ask yourself what is the point of, why am I doing this why am I doing this you know why am I doing that what's the point of getting up what's the point of doing you know you question everything and I think that has got to be a positive thing because you should be questioning everything you should be asking yourself why am I doing this is there any point in this and and in that through that process you start to come to some realization that 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 you are just being actually is okay just being whether you're doing something or not doing something is okay. Um, so, yeah, um, you know, finding, asking lots of questions is is depression provokes that and brings that upon you because you simply have to you have to answer those questions. Otherwise, you you, you are left with what's the bloody point? I like what you said there about being, and we're born just being and being happy with just being we're okay with the fact that we exist and there's we don't need to add anything else on then over time learn more that we feel like we need to add stuff on or subtract things off and again you've spoken about unconditional self-worth being the ultimate state so just happy to be and you quote George Michael saying he once pointed out that famous people aren't famous so much because they have something others lack, but more they lack things others have or they perceive that others have. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. yeah. We hold fame up to this, such a high ideal, don't we? But actually it's, uh, yeah. I think Alan de Bossin says, that the sign of a healthy childhood is no desire to be famous. Yeah, I would agree with that 100%. I mean, it's absolutely, why do you need the attention? It's because you haven't had the the, the affirmation that you are, of worth that you have an intrinsic worth you need something extra you always need to be applauded or something yeah I mean, uh, you know you could argue that a lot of sporting excellence is is provoked by a sense of lack of something the the odd the odd the, the corollary to that of course is that a lot of these people are actually incredibly talented as well mm. so um, it's a dangerous mix. It's a dangerous Ta- talent and trauma. Yeah, um, you know your talent, but I mean, it's it's a very well balanced person that can cope with um, uh, competition and or, or success in their career and be able to cast it aside and say, "Oh, it's a, it's a mere trifle. It's a bagatelle. It's not important." <laughs> yeah. I mean, you've had more experience with you know famous people than than most even most other famous people because you know you were born into a world of being surrounded by famous people and then you know two-time sports personality of the year award and all this kind of stuff without naming names i mean would would you say that what we're just alluding to with fame here is is a general truism that you've noticed throughout your life or not um i i would say that it's it's true of some situations and some things i think that there's 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 no avoiding you know that um uh 
you know, the fact of someone is brilliant at something that they're going to get a lot of attention. It's what they do with that attention. I think the Beatles have, have been a big influence in my life and their experience of fame. They really questioned their, th- their fame and they suffered because of their fame and they were not happy about what fame had done, not necessarily to them, but, but what it does, does to people. You know, you see, you see an ugly side of people. You see a hunger. So it's, it's not just the famous people who are, have the issues necessarily. It's all of us who mm. respond to fame. Yeah, yeah. We're all complicit, aren't we? Yeah. So we put onto those people expectations. Um, and there's this relationship where we have this superhuman who is able to provide us with all our uh, the things we, we we need to believe in. And then we find out, after all, they're not quite as superhuman as we want to, and then we hate them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that yeah. really is the way it goes, isn't it? They've got feet of clay and they've let us down by being human. Which, which is the story. I'm not, I'm not, a, I'm not a religious person, but uh, you know, it is the Christ story. If you like, is that you will deny me, you know, you will before the cock crows three times or whatever it is, you know, you'll all run away from me. You'll all leave me. No, we won't. Oh, <laughs> oops. <laughs> he was right. You know, yeah. You can't put onto people these things. You know, we shouldn't. That's the weakness in our, in us, is that we expect something extraordinary or some magic person to come and fix everything for us. That's, that's, um, we can't. You know, you can't do that to people. We have to. We have to be a bit more grown up about it. A vision of a mature and enlightened society, I guess, for me, would be one where we stop putting people on unrealistic pedestals and sort of realize that everyone has faults and positives and 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 that's fine on that front i mean i would say i'm very impressed by yoval noah harari's his view of things is that what way forward is is in you know um george used to when i when i start racing i I said something to george harrison who was who was very helpful to me in my career and i knew a little bit and he, he just I said, oh, I'd love to. It was some rocket thing or some sort of space. space. I said, I'd love to go out to space. He said, no, man, inner space. I was all excited about getting out there. And he was saying, no, the way forward is in. The way forward is to go within yourself. And that's what Harari is saying, is that until we have leaders who know themselves, we're going to be misled. And the belief that you can fix things is, I think, infinitely flawed you know it's some things are just not possible some things happen to us and we just have to cope um Mm. and there was i earlier saying nothing's impossible but i mean you know it's the point is we have to accept our limitations as as beings you mentioned george harrison clearly a legend and that whole idea of looking in and and I know he was a big meditator and consciousness almost being the sort of the, the final frontier. But the, the other Beatles story, which I quite like is, is the drummer who was, who was ditched just before they became famous and was so down in the dumps. Yet when they revisited him much later, he said it was the best thing that ever happened to me. I had a normal life and you know, it was about the family and all that kind of thing. We would say that, wouldn't he? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Very yeah. true. Very true. Yeah. A yeah. pinch yeah. of salt. I, I think, yeah. Look, I honestly, uh, you know, I, I'm I'm sure he was sincere about that, but I mean, it, they did get put through the mangle because of fame, yeah. Um, yeah. and people created the, you know, they had this expectation of them, and and one of them even got assassinated, and George nearly got them, I mean, you know, assassinated as well. 
where you got attacked. But I mean, it's human beings are what they are, and they are volatile. They can be manipulated and and cajoled and 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 uh, get to persuaded to do things that, in re- on reflection, they might think are. Um, uh, not as wise as they'd had hoped at the time. So here we are. That's what that's what we're made of, and and that's why I think that getting to learn yourself is is very important. And we, we've we've had a chance. With I had a chance when I stopped racing. I got to I frightened myself because I didn't know who I was. Um, so going through self reflection is not not a <clears throat> not not a um, always as comfortable as you you you'd hope. Um, but you you become to you come to a better realization of yourself, not a full mm. one, better one. Yeah, that's the hero's journey that I was referring to at the start, really. And obviously, you spend a lot of time in therapy. Do you think you could have? Do you think it's possible to reach self awareness in that way without that kind of help? Um, I think therapy is extraordinarily useful. I think that I, 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 Jung tried to do it on his own. You know, Jung. It went into the, you know, his his long dark night of the soul. You know, you you, mm. you can get lost. The danger is you can get lost. I do think it's it's helpful to have someone there to to hold your hand on the journey. And there is a an extraordinary uh, chemistry that happens with with therapy, which is that for the first time, nearly ever, you you can you can be with someone who who is not there to take advantage of the knowledge that you are exposing about yourself. So the, you feel there's a comfort that is brought by being with someone who you can reveal yourself to. Um, mm. we're, we're, we're not so free to do that in society. We have to be very careful about what we reveal mm. publicly. Um, and <clears throat> because it is used against us, um, and that's a fact of life, sadly. So the 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 comfort that is brought from being with someone who you can discuss all these mad ideas sometimes you have um you know um but at least they've they've found expression and then you can say okay well that is, that's now i understand that is the completely mad idea um mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I do think it's. I think it's good. I think the public therapy. I'm. I'm nervous of. I. I. I know that there's a lot of people, ex, you know, wanting to reveal themselves, and in some ways, I could be accused of that. You know, revealed that I've been in therapy in the book. So, but I. I would hope that people who need some way out of their predicament would turn to to someone they can trust, um, and and um, and realize that it's going to help. Um, so mm. if that's good, then that's um, that's done something. You spoke earlier about fixing things. Was there a point then during that process that you went through then that you accepted that you know you couldn't fix what had gone before in your own family that you were born into? I think the first two three years of, of therapy were were pretty much fixed, if you can use that word. It, it brought me to realise that there were things that had that had affected me that 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 I wasn't responsible for um and then after that it's about what's your what you're responsible for so you do realize that there's a differentiate you learn to differentiate these these blended lives that you kind of that get muddled up you you are you are fulfilling what you believe to be 
your mission, but it's actually someone else's mission. And so, you know, differentiating between those things is is a release because you realize, oh, I don't have to do that anymore. Um, mm. That's not my bag. That's not my problem. That's someone else's problem. And it's been it's been it's been plopped on my lap, and I've been trying to resolve someone else's issue. So that differentiation between what is your issue and what is someone else's is quite is is very liberating, cathartic. Yeah. A bit of a stretch here, uh, Damon, but I, I'm still going to go with it. So your second son, Josh, you know, nearly followed you down the, the the hill racing route, and then decided against it. Did any part of you think that was a vindication of the work you'd done on yourself to untangle generational wounds? Like I said, it's a bit of a stretch. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it wasn't. I, I tried very hard to 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 not push josh or to uh, to help him if he wanted to go in a particular direction if he needed my help and he came to his own conclusion listen this is not what i want to do this is not who i am and in, i think in some ways you're right i think it somehow he, he's escaped the, the 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 repeat cycle that you know if you're not careful you can end up in um just doing generation after generation doing the same thing and making the same mistake and getting trapped in the same place when they're not actually following what is their own vocation so the work you did on yourself then was um was very worthwhile even from that point of view not just for you and it was consciously done because i didn't want to go through i didn't want my children to go through grief and pain of issues that um, may have been passed on to them well look um Damon, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. I was uh, very excited to to speak to you, and um, it's lived up to and even surpassed my highest expectations. So um, I really appreciate your time, and uh, I hope you enjoyed our conversation at least a, a little bit as much as I did. Simon, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you very much indeed for asking me all those um, very delving questions and, and important questions, actually. So uh, giving me a chance to to chat about things that I'd perhaps. Um, always need to talk about but uh, thank you very much for that pleasure a real pleasure pleasure's all mine thank you damon cheers simon thanks very much for listening to this episode of don't turn with the score i really hope you enjoyed our conversation and i would of course be delighted to hear your thoughts ideas and questions do get in touch via my website simonmundy.com I do really appreciate you listening. And if you could leave a kind rating and review, I would be sincerely grateful. All that remains is for me to say, I hope you'll join me again next time. Until then, thank you and goodbye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.